0: Welcome to Doing the Work, the Frontline Stories of Social Change, where we bring you stories of real people working to address real issues. I am your host, Shimon Cohen. In this episode, I talk with Dr. Monica Cox, who is a disruptor, trailblazer, change agent, and leader who believes in living an authentic life even if it makes people uncomfortable. She grew up an only child in rural Southeast Alabama, where she was raised by her educator parents to persist in the face of personal and professional adversity. She is a distinguished professor of engineering at The Ohio State University. Dr. Cox also provides coaching in the areas of career development, business strategy, and diversity, equity, and inclusion, DEI. Dr. Cox shares her experiences in navigating higher education and DEI as a black woman, particularly around performative diversity and organizational issues. She has a way of speaking on these issues in a personal way that explains how systemic racism is deeply manifested in these spaces, how it has impacted her, what she has done about it, and encouraging others. I've found her words to cut through the BS and really hit home. You're going to want to hear what she has to say. She vulnerably shares her journey with us. For some, her words will be affirming because you know the reality. For others, her words will shake you up because things need to change and you have a choice to make. I hope this conversation inspires you to action. Before we get into the interview, I want to let you all know about our episode sponsor, the University of Houston Graduate College of Social Work. First off, I want to thank them for sponsoring the podcast. UH has a phenomenal social work program that offers face-to-face master's and doctorate degrees, as well as an online and hybrid MSW. They offer one of the country's only political social work programs and an abolitionist-focused learning opportunity. Located in the heart of Houston, the program is guided by their bold vision to achieve social, racial, economic, and political justice, local to global. In the classroom and through research, they are committed to challenging systems and reimagining ways to achieve justice and liberation. Go to www.uh.edu forward slash social work to learn more. And now, the interview. Hey Dr. Cox, I am so thrilled to have you joining me for the podcast. Um, You know, like so many others, found you on Twitter because you... We're posting just about posting in a very authentic, no holds barred way of your experiences as a black woman in academia and the racism and sexism you've experienced and just the way you write just like really just hit me like right in like my heart, you know? So I'm really glad to have you on here. So thank you so much.
1: Mm. Thank you so much, Shimon. It is great to be here. And I always love meeting a Twitter friend. I feel that we're always connected. And it's just, um, you know, it's an honor, like I said. And so, yes, yeah, I can't wait for today. It's gonna be great.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm. I'm so excited. So I guess just to start is like, what got you started, you know, deciding to just be public about all these experiences that you've had.
1: Oh, um, so I met a person who worked with Oprah Winfrey um, and I attended a workshop, at, it was a women of color workshop and they were talking about branding. So this was several years ago. And he talked about the power of social media and how it has um, created his community, how he has gotten uh, video opportunities, but networking opportunities, and it's just been a part of his business. So I was interested in entrepreneurship and I said, let me try this out. One of the things that he told me was that you have to be consistent. So every day you need to post something and you need to respond to people. and so So, I used just those two tips to find my voice and to kind of say, like, what is it that I want to share with people? How do I want to build community? And so that's how this started. And believe me, when I started, it was very empty. No one was out there talking and they weren't being real, but I was consistent. And that's when I started finding the community.
0: Yeah, I want to read one of your tweets. This tweet is from. July 8th, 2021. And this had 27.9 thousand likes. So very viral. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And this is just, I think, you know, really speaks to what draws people to you, part of what draws people to you, the way you put this together. So this one you say, and I want to get your take on this, you know, go into more detail on it. So this is, what, this is your tweet. Instead of showing me your diversity statement, show me your hiring data, your discrimination claim stats, your salary tables, your retention numbers, your diversity policies, and your leader's public actions against racism. End performative allyship.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's a story. And the story is that I have a brand called Stop Playing Diversity. So the performative allyship kind of is a play on that. So, I mean, or Stop Playing Diversity is a play on that, where it's just about being authentic when you do this work. You know, so many people put on, like, they know the right thing to do, but they're not doing the right thing. And it's not really moving the diversity needle, so to speak. So I created a course called you've met your diversity quota, now what? And I had a slide where I presented all of these examples of how you can move past quotas. So I just took the bullet points that were on the slide, and I put them in 280 characters. And that's Where this tweet came from. So it was just me translating material from a workshop into a tweet that I wanted to get out. And that tweet just happened to resonate with so many people.
0: Yeah. And let's break that down, you know, in terms of, you know, what is behind that, like your workshop and, you know, why does this need to exist, you know, based Mm -hmm. on the experiences you've seen and you know put into this work that you do
1: yeah so in a way i feel that i've had a bait and switch in higher education you know it's always looked very pretty um you know the recruitment part is just beautiful you know everyone says we want you because you're qualified um you know it's it's the dog and pony show it's the wine and dine it's the honeymoon period but I have found that whenever I would get into the organization, there were so many issues that I had not, um, that I wasn't aware of. And there were so many questions that I did not ask before. So I created this tweet because I wanted to get to the heart of what anyone who's going to a place should ask when it comes to um, to what's happening. So I'll give you an example. Um, when I was at my first institution um, and I was on the tenure track, I didn't see anyone else who booked like me. So I just went up to an administrative assistant and I asked, Am I going to be the first black woman to get tenure in the College of Engineering? And people researched and they said, Yes, you are going to be the first. And I'm just thinking, you know, I had to educate so many people. It was not just about the academic part of my life. But because I was in Indiana, I was in the cornfields of Indiana, there were so many people who did not understand diversity. And it's just this heavy burden that happens when you're not prepared to be this trailblazer just at your institution, but in the community. Like we're talking about everything from like hair and is the correct term black or African-American? And some people said colored. And I'm like, what, what, where we going? What's happening? And it is a distraction when you are trying to do your daily job. So this is just my, I mean, my whole brand is based on trying to prepare people, trying to make people aware, particularly people who come from underrepresented groups to say, it's not just the pretty picture that everyone paints. You're going to have to do the work, and depending on where you go, it's going to be really hard for you. And you're going to be that trailblazer, whether you want to be that person or not. Right?
0: Because I mean, your your field is engineering, right? Mm-hmm. And you know, there's a lot when people delve into it. Those people who are not like that's not my field, right? Like I'm my field, is social work, counseling, um, edu- You know education, although I know you also have a whole focus on education with teaching engineering. So I'm assuming when you started, like you were saying, like you were just focused on like wanting to study and, and, and publish and research your focus. And yeah. this clearly kind of went in a different direction in some ways, correct?
1: Yes. I think that for every article that I've read about the issues that happen in higher ed, Like I experienced it and it's that part that got me where it's like, oh, people have looked at the empirical research and that's why this is happening. But I started to question uh, why there was nothing after that. So, you know, there are plenty of people who say, well, if you come into an engineering environment and you're a woman. You know, all the, the chilly climate, leaky pipeline, microaggressions, pioneerism, tokenism. I mean, it's the, it's just a laundry list of all the bad things that people experience. And we now have the research to say it happens. But I was concerned that over 20, 30, 40 years, You just had to endure it. Like, that's it. If you talk to anyone, it's like, why is this culture not changing? Why is it that this is just the battle scar that you get for being in this profession? And I knew that I wanted my legacy to focus on ensuring that I didn't spend, you know, 30, 40 years of my life going through it, making it out. Just for someone, you know, 30 years from now to say, oh, I'm still going through the microaggressions, the pioneerism, the tokenism, et etc. Like you have to do something to change the system. You have to, um, you know, just disrupt it if you are going to have an outp- outcome that is different from what you started doing.
0: Yeah. You know, something I I wonder is as you got into these spaces, right, and we're having these experiences, did you always know exactly what was going on? Like, was it always clear to you what was happening, or did it take you time to figure out like all these dynamics at play?
1: Yeah. Um, oh my gosh, I was I was naive. I was very ignorant, and I would say, as an only child growing up in Alabama to older parents, I was I think I was very sheltered. You know, so, you know, I did a lot of reading. And when you read, you often have those happy endings. And yeah, you know, stuff is rough. But I mean, I did learn a lot about persistence and resilience, you know, as, as, you know, someone who grew up in areas where the civil rights um, movement happened. But I am also a very literal person. So if you say that I am a professor, then I have this this image of a professor of like, we're all professors in this field. And I didn't really conceptually break it down of like, oh, my experience is going to be different as a black woman professor versus someone else. But I noticed that people were just treated differently. You know, for the first time, I learned that people were paid differently. I learned that some people had access and other people didn't. And usually I was the one who did not have the access and it didn't feel good. And so I learned about the inequities and the culture from being one of the only people in the room and just being keenly aware that something was wrong, something was different in how I experienced my world versus other people who seem to be extremely excited about every aspect of academia.
0: Mm. So there were things you weren't so excited about.
1: Oh, no, not at all, not at all, no, no, I mean, if for example, you think about teaching a large engineering class and the research talks about, you know, bias, gender bias in racial bias that happens. And with some of my engineering students, like they had never had a female professor. Some of my engineering students had never had a woman of color. So I noticed that there's like a way that I would speak, or there are examples that I would provide that were just not aligned with the majority of um, the students in my class. And, you know, my humor was different. So it's everything that made me me that somehow was this learning curve for people, but you don't have time for people to learn about you when you have course evaluations. You know, it's like, oh, okay, give her two semesters. And, you know, one story I will say that kind of illustrates this is that um, I was teaching a first year course and I think I was very strict, you know, came from that Southern Alabama upbringing, Um, you know, very much like I wanted people to pay attention in class, I would call them out for stuff. And um, I was at the Indianapolis 500 a couple of years after I taught this one class. And I saw one of the students who was in my class. Um, so he said, you know, Professor Cox, I told my mom about you. And you really frightened me in class. I understand now what you were doing. But I want to apologize because I was just silly. I wasn't focused. You know, I was this freshman who didn't get it. But now I understand what you were trying to teach me. Now, at the time, that didn't help with my course evaluations but it's this whole people have to get to know you and it's it's that part that's very um very uh disheartening it's frustrating many times because you have to um prove your credibility and you don't automatically get that sometimes when you're when you're in the field you know it's, it's presumed incompetent like there's a book that, that's out there presumed incompetent and it does talk about you know, women of color and how that's how how it starts. You know, oh, you're a diversity hire. You're an affirmative action hire, not, oh, you're a brilliant engineer. You're a brilliant engineering educator. Let me now give you that respect. And then, you know, everything else comes. So I feel like it's always this proving. Being a first is about proving, but that wears on you over time because you know who you are. And at some point it's like, bump it, I'm not... I'm not here to prove that I deserve to be here anymore. Like, I don't owe you that.
0: Yeah. Like the whole qualifications thing always is an issue. And, you know, we're in different fields, but like I I was in higher ed for a number of years and the director of the program I I was at um, when there were positions that were open and there was talk of you know, who's going to get those positions? Because at the time there were no black faculty, none in a school of social work where a large number of students were black and, and, uh, and Latino, Latina, uh, Latinx, Latina. Mm-hmm. And had been asking, like, we want faculty who look like us, you know, like the mm-hmm. students had been vocal. And the director said to me um, behind closed doors, you know, she said, "I really want to hire black faculty, but only if they're qualified." And I'm, I'm like, <laughs> I've never heard that about a white man. Like, I really want to hire a white man, but only if he's qualified, right? I mean, mm-hmm. it just sounds like the most ridiculous statement, which just shows how embedded it is, you know? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think that that's real. And I could say as a full professor and as someone who's been in the the field for so many years, I often have to call people out, you know, with those when they have those biases. And, and um yeah, like, I think that's what leadership is about many times. And so that's like another level. And I wish that I could just tell people who are in these fields that it's just an act of service. Like when you become... Um, like when you enter this profession, yes, you have that, you know, teaching research service, but service is so much bigger because you're paying it forward, you know, for people who will come after you and you do not even know what your service will look like. Like it is just the weight is so heavy. And, um, if you're not prepared for it, it could, it could really take you out. It's, it's a lot. You have to turn it off because you, there is always work to do, and there's always a way to educate people, and you will never be compensated enough for the the tax that is on you in this position.
0: I think, so, you know, something I think about a lot uh, because of just some of these experiences, like when I was at this one institution and th- that comment and num- many other things, um, and then obviously stuff I've read about and heard about from others is just the people in these powerful positions though, that do have like these beliefs. And then also the fact that they think that they don't, you know, like they think that they're not like, no one wants to be racist, right? Like mm-hmm. every, there's racism, but no one's racist except like yeah. KKK and Nazis. Right. So um, how do, you know, what's been your experience like trying to break through or how that goes with those kinds of conversations with people like that?
1: I think they're always hard because what you're referring to, too, I often talk about like the patriarchy. Um, and for me, it's just a way of doing work that is very capitalistic. It's very competitive. It's very Western, so to speak. And I tell people, um, you know, many of us who are people of color or people who come from um you know, minoritized communities are very communal. We're very team based. We're very inclusive. And and you know, connecting to um to people and, and coming together um to, to succeed is really important. And so that is that tension that I also see. Um so it is hard to teach people about that. It's hard in academia for people to understand that everyone can win. Mm like maybe you have impact in different ways but you know the the focus is usually like there's going to be one president, one provost, one dean, one you know whatever and so you have people who are so competitive and you learn how to play the rules. You I mean you learn how to play the game. And I often tell people academia is not hard. Not trying to sound snobby, (laughs) but it's not hard. You know what it is? It's learning how to play the game. It's learning how to speak. It's it's learning how to fit into a system that has been designed a certain way. And if you even want to break it down, yes, you have to have X number of papers, X number of grants, and you just figure out who do I collaborate with to get to where I need to go? Who is my mentor? Um, You know, what do I spend my time doing? What students do I recruit? Like, it is so strategic. But I think the tension that's happening now is that people are wondering if it's worth playing the game to the point that you lose your soul. You lose your happiness, you lose Mm -hmm. your joy. And, and, you know, with the pandemic, with everything that's happening, I think people are saying, hold up, is this, is this my life? Like, I'm gonna be 65. And then I'm gonna be like, oh, I played that game. Well, and I have my, you know, my home, I have my, uh, my car, I have my material things, but I lost my soul. I left a little bit of me back <laughs> in the academy. And I can't get that back. I can't get my time back. I can't get that joy back. So, um, I went all over the place and I would say that it is difficult for people to understand um, why the Academy sucks life out of you. But one other thing I'll say about this real quick, and I had an aha moment this week and I wrote it on Twitter, of course, Um, but it's about imposters. And I think that, you know, imposter syndrome is something that a lot of people say they have because let me just tell you, higher ed is just all consuming. You will ne- the, the thing is you will never be enough. You will never be good there. So you're going to always feel like an imposter, but the imposter is higher ed. It makes you think that um it has it has it together. It makes you think that they know how to do diversity well or it's an inclusive place, but when you get in, There aren't always answers. They don't know what to do when things go wrong and you're just buying into this facade. That sounds very bad and negative, but I feel like that's my reflection after almost being here for twenty years. It's like y'all saw me something that I don't think is 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 great like y'all y'all say you like six two and fine, but you know you about like five three and a little stocky and mm, <laughs> <laughs> mm, yeah, you're not sexy like that <laughs> I mean, it's almost like
0: you know I think a lot with um how the united states you know american exceptionalism and all that and like there's like this higher ed exceptionalism you know they they Mm -hmm. really they really go together like that um yes you know like saying that these are these ideals when like all these contradictions are the reality
1: exactly and i you know and it's like what i said i mean i'm even at this point And I, of course, I had a tweet today. It's like, do I tweet all day? I probably do. But, you know, it was a moment where it's like, I really think about leaving academia sometimes because it doesn't represent my values and it's like I had my values before I came in and when I coach you know as an authenticity coach I often I talk about this this visual that I have and and just imagine a bookshelf I talk about the core and I talk about your legacy as the bookends and so you have the books that are in between and so often we move away from our core the very thing that we did when we were young the thing that gives us life and makes us who we are and our legacy is that thing that we're going to leave but we we focus so much on the in between like the the um the check boxes and just busyness but when you really think about like the bookends of your life that helps you to determine like what you focus on and so I'm just trying to take more time to say I know my legacy is that I want to help people come out of this hole. I want to be whole I don't want to be broken in life and so how can I be there for my for my family and for my son and then Like talking is something I've always done and tweeting, like having a gift with like words, but I'm an engineer. I'm like, I have to go back to that. And Twitter gives me, it returns me to that space that sometimes academia said was unacceptable, but I'm ignoring the noise of academia to say, I'm making a difference with who I am. And I'm not going to apologize for that. I'm not going to change who I am. And that is so hard. That's the thing.
0: Yeah, like, do you – I have a, I have a few questions just based on that I want to ask you. Okay. The first one, I think, is do you feel like you could do that if you were, you know, starting out and still, you know, junior faculty, like, starting out on a tenure track? Like, or are you able – you know, because there's always people who are like, I got to wait for tenure, got to wait for tenure. But, like, for me, I was faculty who was non-tenure. So, it was like, we were never going to get tenure anyway. So, what, do you just never – say anything, you know, you just always try to play the game, which that doesn't work for me. So
1: yeah, it depends on the environment. And I think that like, if you're in a place that is more open to communicating and expressing yourself and and changing and, and connecting, um, then yes, you probably could. But if you're in a very rigid environment, that's not used to anything other than the bureaucracy, you're probably not going to get tenure. So I would say as a junior faculty, I didn't do it as much, but I had a moment where I was in a meeting and, um, you know, I had done things by the book. I have a, pre- you know, I look at my office and it's like, I have a presidential award with President Obama. I have my picture with John Lewis. I have my picture with Michelle Obama. Um, and so, you know, I did those things that took me to really great places in higher ed. But when I was in a meeting, and was disrespected, I had a moment and I said, you know what, I played the game and I still got disrespected. So I might as well, you know, be myself. I might as well be more vocal and be this person who sometimes ruffles feathers, but people know where I stand and I know that I'm gonna make an impact in spaces that are important to me. So, you know, I often just tell people, no matter how well you play the game, if the system does not welcome you, I mean, you're still not going to succeed the way that you would like to. Yeah. So it's like, go big or go home. <laughs> right, right. At, and some, I mean, at some point.
0: And, and like, getting to what you were just saying before, too, you know, and, and this connects to it, like, and I, this is one of the things I wanted to ask you is like, you know, you said you want you want to heal, you want to be whole, you don't want to be broken, you know, so... <laughs> Mm-hmm. Part of that, it sounds like, is go big or go home. But what else, you know, what else is that for you? You know, what else is being whole for you?
1: Yeah. Um, being whole is is not being afraid. You know, it's being courageous and it's being brave. Um, it is owning who I am. It's being able to sleep at night because I'm just authentically me. Um, I think... And this was an aha. I feel like I have moments in my life. It's, it's almost like having a, a play-by-play. And since the pandemic started, like this is what, what moved me from being an administrator and the thoughts I had to saying, I need to do more entrepreneurship and I need to be more vocal, even more vocal than I am. Um, it's the fact that I had talked to so many Black women in my organization. And so many people were hurt. And they said, I can't speak out. And it was such a pattern that after a while, I said, it feels wrong for me to be this full professor when so many other people are hurting. Like, you know, it's like a a fork in the road. Do I continue on this administrative path, knowing that if I play the game, I will get everything that I've wanted since everything I thought I wanted since I was 19 years old? Or do I shift down this path that is uncertain? Knowing that I may never get another administrative position, knowing I could be, you know, blackballed, knowing that, uh, you know, I'm that person, I'm that, I'm that target, you know, in higher ed. And, you know, I will just say this really quickly. Um, something that changed me is that I got a direct message on Twitter one day and I said, this is like the direct message that sealed it for me. A woman who was a grad student, um, an engineering direct message to me, and she told me that she was thinking of taking her life, but my words kept her going. Wow. They kept her moving. And I'm like, my words, what words are we talking about? Me tweeting about my experiences? But I get things like that all the time. And one of the the best comments that someone also told me, um, someone who was a full professor, she said, I see how you tweet, I see how you say things. And she said, you, have this unique ability to build as you battle. Yes, it's hard, but you're building. And it's that part. You know, and another person who has a business um, who is a financial representative said, you speak the words that are in me. So I just kept getting all these responses where I'm just like, I just wanna be an administrator. You know, I just wanna go and do my work. And there was even this embarrassment of like, why am I Twitter famous? Like, that just seems like, you know, Wordle, it's kind of like a Wordle moment. It's like, oh, I'm the Wordle queen. Like, I can get Wordle in two, in two tries. I mean, you know, that just doesn't sound great when you're programmed as an academic to be so scholarly and have your age index and be empirical. But... I mean, I could tell you, Shimon, time and time again, I will be on presentations. Presidents of universities, um, professors are like, I follow you on Twitter. I was on a $15 million project and people were recruiting me to be on the project because they're like, you need to get Monica Cox from Twitter to be on the project. <laughs> like, <laughs> what, what, what? So I still don't quite know what to do with that because it feels... um I hate to say shallow, but you know what I mean? It feels, it feels like it's something that academics don't value. And I'm still trying to figure out how to process something that was never what I planned to do. I was not trying to be Twitter famous. I just wanted to tell stories and help people. And now it's just a lot.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, not story of... You know, the student reaching out to you, I, I, you know, I think that's what I really felt, you know, reading your posts. And so, I mean, so many do is that you say the things that so many people wish they could say mm. and you just you just get right to it. You know, there's almost like a I mean, this might sound strange, but there's almost like a spiritual aspect of the way you write. Um, that's just so affirming um, because it just strips it you strip away all the bs you know and you just always cut right to the heart to the heart of it now i want to ask you um some stuff about like organizational change because i know that's part of the work you do i know you know you've done obviously that through your engineering positions but you also with your stop playing diversity work that you do. And something like, you know, that's pretty clear is that, you know, a lot of these diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts are performative and fail um, uh, and actually like do harm, right? Like a lot of them do harm. So for people, you know, following the, the podcast who, you know, really care about this which most of you know the people following this podcast like already care about social justice racial justice they're just looking for like ways like how do i go about implementing this because a lot of them are getting crushed within the organizations that they're in right and Mm -hmm. you know social workers don't make a lot of money um some do but not like you know there's people that are just they're getting crushed They see these problems, they're feeling the problems, especially, you know, based on who they are and the oppressions that they're up against. And they feel stuck, you know, in terms of like, what, how do they go about initiating change? Then there's other people in leadership positions who are trying to implement change, but it's like, you know, Mm -hmm. not everyone's on board with it. So just, you know, maybe some key things that you recommend that people can do.
1: Yes. Oh, my goodness. Um, That's a lot. You know, I think maybe I said it before we started, but I kind of have this aha moment where, you know, we are in a system. We're, we're systems inside systems inside systems inside systems. And a lot of those systems, I mean, you need structure. So when you think about organizational change, I love structure. I love processes, policies, um, et cetera. But you find that there are issues where sometimes policies um, are not implemented well. There are policies that don't exist. Policies need to be created when you bring new people into the system. And so there's like that whole element that should be focused on all the time. And I tell people in a system, like we are renters and leasers. Like that's, that's something I did not think about until 2020, you know, when... I was in a position and at the drop of a hat it was like we don't want you in that position anymore in higher ed and it's like but i produced but i did whatever and so you have to understand when you don't own something because i think a lot of burdens come when it's like oh my gosh i'm in here and i have to change everything guess what one person does not change a system until you don't own the system so even if you think that you control it you don't and so really Managing your expectations is important. And I know that's not like what a lot of people want to hear because, you know, the, the, the romanticized version of it is we're going to dismantle, like we're going to get five people together and just break it down. No, it's not that you could break a system down, but how do you sustain the system? Like who's running the system? What's going on? And that's why, like, side note, when I talk about dismantling, you know, I'm like, we don't have, you know, we don't have a plan. You know, I get that everybody wants to be like gung-ho, let's like change stuff, but we have to put more thought into what it looks like. So if everything changes, then what does leadership look like? How do we monitor this? How do we hold people accountable in ways that are equitable? Um, but I went off. But, um, you know, what do I say? Man, I sound like a pessimist. But I really do believe in the power of entrepreneurship. I believe in the power of doing things outside a system, and so I think that there are ways to do it when you're creating nonprofits, when you're, um, you know, just just starting things with your own resources. You know, that's how you kind of begin to build community as well, and that's what I've done. And so my whole story with Stop Playing Diversity is that, you know, out of the millions of dollars after all the initiatives. I'm still in pain. I'm still struggling. And I said, let me take the lessons that I've learned as a professor and talk to people and kind of create communities of people on Twitter, you know, in other places where we're having these conversations. But we're now going into not just a single institution, but multiple institutions. And we are on the same page about the work that needs to be done. And so, I mean, just to kind of end the spot, my vision is. You know, I used to say I want to be a university president, but I got to a point where I said that's too small because a single institution is ruled by a board of trustees and, you know, all that system. But we if we're going to really do this work, well, we have to elevate. We have to use media, you know, like our podcasts, like our social medias. We have to take it to levels that academia or the the brick and mortar spaces are not used to. So. I'm kind of rambling a little bit, but I will say... I love it. It's the virtual part. Like, you think about it. If if things were built in the buildings where we work and the structure is there, you have to do something in spaces that the patriarchy doesn't yet control. So I love social media because the very people who would try to police what's happening in... The brick and mortar. They're not policing because they don't know TikTok. They don't know Twitter yet. You know, they people think it's fluff. But movements are happening virtually and it's kind of like the Underground Railroad. You know, it's like you don't you don't need to understand that space. Stay on the plantation. Do what y'all do because we got some other stuff going on behind the scenes in the churches, in the services that people don't want to come to. Oh, we have some stuff happening. Keep it's okay. That's beneath you, but we got it. We gonna tweet in two hundred eighty characters. We started the entire movement. It's all good. We just dismantle your system in two, in two eighty. It's good. We just, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you look at what happens. Entire systems are crushed <laughs> on social media. Like you said, you get one influencer, academic influencer, to be like, "Did y'all know blah 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 was happening at mm, institution? Did you know blah blah blah?" And out of us, all of a sudden, you know, there are people who didn't get tenure. And they're getting tenure because of a hashtag. There's, you know, it's, you know what I'm talking about? Like, oh, yeah, it's, the, it's, it's moving.
0: <laughs> the administrators are terrified of their institution getting tweeted about. Like, when I was going through my stuff where I was at, they were like monitoring me and it was coming up. Like, they would, like, I got, like, leadership brought it up, you know, admin like would bring it up, like, you're writing about this, you're writing about that, you know, and and then um when I gave my notice to leave, they like I was I gave eight and a half years of my life to this place and and all they wanted to say is like, what are you gonna post? <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. What are you gonna
0: post, you know? What are you gonna write about? What are you gonna say about us, you know?
1: Exactly. I'm gonna say the truth. And you know what i tell people it's so funny because i feel like you know every there are a lot of people who are who are really obsessed with my twitter and i'm like can you be as obsessed about the content of the tweet as you can about the fact that i tweeted it like can you know i was i had this this thing that i said one time and i'm like if someone's working in media or communication if if you see something like that then maybe instead of being like oh my gosh somebody's making this look bad say There seems to be an issue as it relates to diversity, equity, and inclusion, and maybe you all need to look at this. Because if this person is bold enough to put their name, you know, their identity, and who they are out there, then this is something that is probably problematic. And so that's what I'm saying. It's like reframing how people look at things, and there's just such a powerful opportunity for leaders who are proactive to say, like, Shimon, oh... What are you saying? What's going on? Okay, well, you know what? I got, I have some really real data here. And so there's something that you're telling me that I need to be aware of before it blows up, or I need to address, you know, X, Y, and Z. And I just think people want their voices to be heard in ways that no structure, coming back to the original tweet I told you about. Um, I think it resonated because that's not what institutions do. But Twitter is also that space where you collect exit interview data, you collect real time feedback about what's happening and organizations are not asking these things. People are just like, let me tell y'all. It sucks here. Don't do it. Stranger danger. Don't come to this institution because they don't do this well. And there's just this disconnect between the reality and people saying, I want to comb all the data, let's do something with it. Like that's what future leaders should be. But they're not. (laughs) Many of them are not.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really good point. It's like, look, you want to do DEI? Like you want to really make these changes? Like as you say, you want to stop playing diversity? Like, the research is, the data is there. Like that, Absolutely. like that's very clear. So where do the, where do these places get hung up? I mean, to me, and, and just let me know what you think and please like mm-hmm. expand on this. Like to me, they get caught up because like they don't want to change. Like they're steeped in white supremacy. They're steeped in capitalism. They're steeped in patriarchy. They're steeped in mm-hmm. ableism, heterosexism. They want to say this stuff. But they don't really want to change,
1: I agree. I mean, I always use the example of the pandemic, and I say, I mean, it was funny how with equipment, everybody was remote, like Zoom boomed, and you know, people who didn't even know how to use a computer were all on the computer. Um, entire universities had all their courses online, and they had never done anything like that before. So, you know, I said, as my mom says, people do what they want to do. And so when when it was about the dollar and losing $40,000 of tuition from students, um, people figured out how to use that yeah, technology. Yeah, they moved really quick. <laughs> and, so you're right. I mean, when you look at what we have known as historical problems, you know, as it relates back to diversity, there is not a quickness because – you know, I think there's a lot of fear. So what happens? And you see like the polarities that are happening. Like, like before I got on today, it's saw about Florida and the stay, Wo- stay woke act. And don't, don't say gay. I think, you know, both of those were out there Yeah. and it's like being approved in the Florida house. And it's just this whole thing of um like, what is it? It's, it's, I don't know. I just keep saying it's like a mess. I'm sorry. I got, I got kind of caught up because I was just thinking about it. And no, it's, it's just,
0: it's insane. It's,
1: yeah. So it's not even that people aren't trying to address diversity, but if anything, it's like trying to do things that squash it to the point of saying, we don't even want to talk about it. And if you dare do it, we're going to penalize you in ways that impact your life. And it just, um, It's intimidation. It's, um, you know, retaliation. It's a lot of stuff that just, look, it, it expresses the fear that people have of losing control. That's ultimately what's going on. Like people don't know what it looks like when you bring everyone to the table. Will it mean that everything that they have been working for their entire lives will no longer be there? Will they no longer have the American dream that they wanted to have? You know, so- you have to address the fear. You know, that's the thing I tell people. So often we look at diversity, equity, and inclusion, but I feel that the heart of our conversations should be simple questions such as, what are you afraid of? Why can't we be on the same page? Why do you think that way? You know, what have you done? What has proven to you that that's true? What frameworks are you using to define that as fact and I think people get caught up in the emotion and it's just a lot of distractions but we need to always remember to come back to that core and just the questions that that center why things are the way they are why didn't we move quickly why did people not um move past diversity statements after the murder of George Floyd Why do we not hold people accountable? Why are people afraid to hold people accountable?
0: Yeah. I mean, I think one thing that I've seen is, and like, I'm just so glad we're having this conversation. Like, one thing I've seen is, because when I was going through it, it was like, at times I didn't have language for it, and I felt very like, Honestly, I felt, like, pretty crazy um, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because of what was going on. And they would say stuff like, is everything okay at home? And, like, things like that. Yeah. And it was like, what? Like, these issues keep getting brought up. Like, it's not my, it's not my, it's not me. It's not my problem. Mm -hmm. But I, there, things would happen, like, for example, um, hiring black faculty. Like, that was always, Mm -hmm. like, a major um, thing that would come up. And, and it should, you know, it should, Mm -hmm. because it was such a issue, which of course, you're not going to hire black faculty if the environment isn't conducive for that. And then you're not going to retain people. And then also people are just not going to be able to like thrive and be whole, like you're talking about in these spaces, but they would say stuff like, you know, um, well, we posted the position In this like black organization and we did this and we did this and oh Miami you know like black people don't want to move to Miami like I literally heard this stuff or like Mm -hmm. where's the black professional community in Miami I heard a white person these are all things white people were saying it's like first Mm -hmm. of all like what do you know about that um and I would sit there and listen to this stuff and when I finally started speaking up about it I was like why can't why aren't we looking at ourselves It's Mm -hmm. like, where's the relationship the other however many months of the year with the organization that you want to post this in their newsletter? You know, like, where are these ongoing relationships? You know, where, you know, it was like, you just want to, like, be who, keep everything the same and then post it here and you think someone's going to apply. But you really don't care that much if they're going to because otherwise you'd be doing this work year round.
1: Absolutely. And you know what, you make it, I mean, to me, it seems very simple, but yeah. it's, it's like what you said about relationships. When you think about a courtship, and you meet someone, I'm sure there are these, these relationships where people like, you know, love at first sight, let's get married in like, um, a month or love is blind. Like, that's a show on Netflix that I look at sometimes. But you know, people need to think about how they would like to be courted. You know, is it a hit it and quit it? Is this a one night stand? Because really people are claiming that they want, you know, this really loving relationship, but they're really being, you know, carnal in how they connect. And if you want that, then that's cool. But you're not going to, I mean, this isn't a marriage. And I feel like people want a marriage, but they're acting like they just want a one night stand. And, and that does not...
0: Did you just call academia a one night stand?
1: I think that <laughs> recruitment like how people recruit I love is love it's, it's really lazy you know what I mean and we could like you know I love my metaphors all day and it's like you know what taking me to Burger King and being like oh my gosh I want you to commit to this like five year relationship and it's like you can get a Whopper you can get you some um, fries and a drink and maybe a dessert but it's like boo that's like a $10 meal but you expected me to make like a $20,000 commitment or whatever you know what I'm saying like That Mm -hmm. is not enough to woo me. And I feel that people want to get by being so cheap when it's like, I want the filet mignon experience. I want you to fly me to the private island. I want you to... I mean, your resources, that's that's another point. Like, you have to use your resources. If it didn't cost you anything, if it was $15, guess what? You're about to get a $15 return because I'm about to walk to the person who's going to whine and dime me and treat me valuable like I'm valuable and precious. And that's why I said it just sounds so commonsensical because even in life, Do you really expect to woo somebody when you're so cheap, when you're so disrespectful, when you're so shallow, when you show that you don't want anything, you don't want me for more than my body? And I mean, and that's that's a really interesting, you know, metaphor, but it's real. Like you just want the quickness. You don't want my heart. You don't want my personality. You don't want everything that I can bring to add to the relationship. You want a servant. You want to you want to dictate. You want to rule me. But I want to think I want to have ownership. I want some property. I want, you know, all these things that will help me to be better. And so hopefully people can take that from this session and just really always think about that. How are you treating this person? And and based on how you're treating that person is the return um, what you think it should be, because if you're expecting too much, you're
0: delusional. Yeah, and and to me, it's like a, it's like beyond that one person. It's like the com, it's like the group or like the community. Because mm-hmm. if if you're in a field, if you're in like in a profession, and your only po your only interaction with like the black organization within your pro- same profession is when you're recruiting and you just post in a newsletter, but you have no yeah. interaction with this organization. The rest of the the rest of the year, right? Or mm-hmm. for m- many years.
1: Right.
0: Yeah. People see right through it. I mean, Absolutely. people aren't stupid. Like, what do, like,
1: <laughs> I mean. And talk about you like a dog behind your back, too, to be like, mm, not only do we see through you, but they are terrible. Please stay away. No. Exactly.
0: It's, it's ridiculous. And it just doesn't, I don't know, like, it just doesn't seem like that hard to me to just, like, have relationships with people. I just, I don't understand, it's so, I don't know why it's so complicated for people. Yes, I agree. You know? But it's, people are in their bubbles and a lot of, I mean, I don't want to try to come off like I'm like some enlightened white person either or anything like that, but like, they're you know, a lot of white people are just in their white bubbles and just don't want to be, maybe want to think they're out of it because they're liberal, you know? But they're, but a lot of us are really deep within it, you know? Mm.
1: Mm-hmm. and and i think too like there's just this humility that you have to have this vulnerability to say my like your view is not the dominant view but it's so hard because it's like everything that you want and i'm not saying it's anyone's fault but you know in society like your view is the dominant one and to kind of say what is it like to do this differently what is it like to think differently like that is an exercise that just requires a lot of a lot of reflection And like I said, humility and um, also accountability. So you have to let someone tell you when something is offensive, tell you when something is off. And I think so often as humans, you know, there's that pride of like, you can't tell me what to do. Like, I'm trying. And it's like what you said, like, you don't want to be labeled, but it's like you're doing this wrong. And do you have someone who is giving you permission to tell you when you're wrong and will Mm -hmm. you not lash out at that person or use your power and or privilege if they tell you the truth about yourself
0: yeah that's the deep internal work that especially with like emotional regulation for that moment when you know because like i know for me when i've Been called out on stuff like I get a physical, or even before I say something, and like I'll have like a physical feeling, you know, like I feel it in my body, like I feel so uncomfortable, you know. So it's like, have I done enough work so I can like regulate through that to be able to be present to grow, you know? Mm Because in the end, it's about like the growth that can come from it.
1: Absolutely. And,
0: and doing the right thing. I mean, beyond just the growth that can come from it, but doing the right thing. Mm -hmm. There's a couple other things I want to ask you about before we wrap up. So I know you're a full professor. You're, you know, you've been a a department chair, correct me if I'm got the terminology wrong. Um, So you've, you've been in, you know, you've got like, you've had job security uh, with tenure and things like that. But like, How have you, and how do you kind of coach people on being prepared for retaliation as they do this work?
1: Man, um, I feel like I'm just learning that myself, and I feel like you have to really dig deep for this, because the consequences are real. Like There are so many things that you can lose when you do this work, and... You know, I talk about building your muscles, your courage muscles, you know, and really just, you have to know very deliberately what your risk, like I I talked about it in one of my Stop Playing Diversity podcasts. And I said, you know, what's your diversity threshold? And I used to be really upset because I was like, why am I the one that's out here stepping out being brave? But I have the grace to do this. I feel that, you know, for whatever reason, probably since I was little, you know, I'm the one who was always outspoken. And you have to move at your level of comfort um, I think that if you want to grow, you have to do deliberate work to grow in this space because it's, it's taking the risk and saying, okay, I'm in a room and I know if I put myself out there, something could happen to me, but am I willing to say something today? Like that is an example of being very deliberate about what you do, but you have to make those choices. It's like exercising, you know, you're not gonna be able to run a marathon just by sitting and watching a marathon. You have to, with diversity, Use your voice, use your title, use your 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 power that you have, your positionality bit by bit to say this is a decision that I'm going to make. And I understand there's heat, but I own it. I've thought it through and I stand by it. And that's it. And that's courage. That's an example of it with everything that happens. I said, Um, but unfortunately, with this work, you don't have a lot of how do I say it? You know, I said you have to build it. But you don't have a lot of opportunities to practice in a safe way mm-hmm. because every time you do it, there could be a consequence of like you just lost your job, right? You just got demoted. You just got called out. You just got threatened because you tried it. I wish it was pretty and neat, but it's not.
0: <laughs> I mean, I think like you know, people you know talk about like you know, make sure you've got receipts, you know, document and everything, yeah. and and I think. Those are obviously really important things Mm -hmm. to do. Eventually a situation could end up at HR, but we know HR is like not your friend. (laughs) Um, But I think of like, you know, I think of like the, about Brian Flores with um, I don't know if you follow football. Um,
1: Yeah. Well, I don't follow football, but I know about the case.
0: Exactly. Right. Like this is something that transcends whether someone like likes football or not, but. You know, and he did. He is hired. Um, he he did get hired now, but as like an assistant. But a lot of people thought, you know, like he's probably risked his entire career at this point, um, with taking on uh racism within the NFL. You know, I mean,
1: like Colin Kaepernick, perhaps <laughs> exactly <laughs> who never played ever again. <laughs> yeah,
0: I mean, he was one pass away from winning a Super Bowl. You know, like literally a, an incomplete pass away. Um but you know he's got it it'll be interesting to see when evidence gets presented because he you know he does have um he he kept records and he talks about that you know and of course that's like a super high profile situation but um you know it could be that he still there's no recourse for him like even with all his level of position because what he's up against is so is so big you know
1: yeah, and I do think that sometimes when you do this work, you you move past that point where it's about the job, because you you you've seen something that is bigger than you are. And I even say this uh, when I think about civil rights activists. Of course, you know I don't know what Martin Luther King's mindset was, but I can imagine you know after he was threatened. By the FBI, by the US government, you know, people kept coming for him. You know, you're, I've seen this, you're either going to move forward and say, it's got to be worth it for me to do this, or it's like, I just retreat to what? Like, you just, there is a point of no return in this. Like, if he's never hired again, I don't know if that's his purpose anymore. I think by the time you get to this point, it's like, I need to make sure that no one else goes through what I go through. And I understand that my career may be jeopardized, but this is a a moment in history that's bigger than my career. With Colin Kaepernick, you know, I don't think he kneeled to be a martyr. It's just the fact that the response was so terrible and long lasting. That he realized I'm onto something and now I have to continue moving because there are other issues and other sports where this is happening and this can now be the thing that knocks the door down. So those are examples of the trailblazers and trailblazers don't trailblaze just to be seen trailblazers trailblaze because it needs to be done like they're on a path and then they realize it's there is no there's no pathway here. And I have to, what do you do? I stay in the forest or I continue moving to get out of here. And that's what you have to do. And it is so scary because you do not know if there is a cliff in front of you. You do not know if there's poison ivy or bees. You know, it's very Hunger Games-like to me. When you think about doing this work, you're just out there and you have to survive, but... Yes. I'm just saying like people see it. I believe that the people who do this work many times have to be visionary because you cannot continue to get up and do it every day. If you did not see something in your mind as the purpose, you don't just wander in this space because it's not fun to wander. It's not fun to just do this. You don't do it just for because. You do it because your eyes are on a prize. And I promise you, for each of those people, at some point, it's like, I keep moving every day because I see the prize. I know where I'm going. Even if no one else sees it, I know what, what this has the potential to be.
0: Yeah. I and, I and, you know, for people who, I mean, people who have, like, health conditions and are like, am I going to lose my health insurance? You know, I mean, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it is... It's terrifying. Um, That was one of my situations because I have a health condition and I like have mm. to take medicine every day. Um, so it was always like, you know, I think people should need to have like exit plans, you know, like backups yeah. to the backup plan of like, what am I going to do if like this doesn't work or they come after me, you know, other than having the proper documentation, there might need to be legal counsel, you know, something like that. But Yeah, People, you know, people economically just need to be, like, prepared for, like, what other job can you do, you know? Absolutely. And, you know, and obviously in academia, there's tons of people leaving academia right now and are actually doing better (laughs) outside of academia, you know?
1: Absolutely. And you know what? And I think, too, you know, people are just more aware of what the potential could be. But I often tell this story about black women and how like so many black women I know who are academics and have fought this fight or passing or have passed in their forties, their fifties and their sixties. So the life expectancy is not like, Oh my gosh, you know, you live to be 95 as an academic. And it's that part that I look at too. And I feel like there are so many people who say, if we don't make these environments better, if we don't, if we don't say something, then this could be my life. And that's, that's like a whole different movement right now too, with people. Um, you know, one example I often give and I think about, like, at the time that we're talking, um, the former Miss USA, I think about her all the time, Chesley Christ, um, who jumped from the 29th floor of a building. And, um, you know, I've looked at her TikTok videos. I have looked at, you know, so many things. I did not know her before, but you look at her, she is, she was gorgeous and smart and talented and she seemed to always be happy. But I kind of am in a space where I keep asking these questions of, am I okay? Like I'm trying to be more conscious of it. And I think so often, and I can speak about it as a member of the black community, we don't self-reflect on things like that. And I was talking to one of my clients about this, like I was doing a check in with my clients and I'm like, hey, you know, let's reflect. How you doing? What's going on? And I was like, you know, we need to take a break. And she, she asked, do we have permission to take a break? Does anyone allow us to mm-hmm. take a break? And it's just like based on history and, you know, black women as property and, you know, as, as, um, you know, just whatever they want to call us, you know, we were not brought here to be the pristine people you know, who, who should be um, placed on a pedestal. We were brought here um, to breed. We were brought here to, to, as property. And over time, you know, we have become a part of the civil rights movement, the women's, you know, all these things, but we were never the first thought. And so I think a lot of the things that I say and do come from the fact that I have to be very deliberate in taking care of myself. And you talked about healing. Because institutions don't do that for me. Mm-hmm. And I think that's going to be the next movement that people realize where it's like, okay, how do I define this for myself? How do I do this so that I don't have this heart attack? So that even if I work out, the stress is not making me um, not be able to lose weight. Because, you know, that's just the whole thing I was talking to someone about, too, where it's just like that constant stress is just killing people. Yeah. And it's not worth it. And academia does not tell us that it's not worth it, but you have to get to a point where you say, I'm not going to die for this. It is like, this is not it. I will work at McDonald's, no shade to McDonald's. I will do whatever it it means. And I I used to say, I will fry, you know, as a southerner. I said, "I I will sell fish plates on a corner if I need to, instead of dying. I have to be here for my family, I have to be here for myself, so. That's also why I tweet the way I do, getting back to that part as well. I'm gonna be free, and I want other people to be free too. I want us to live long lives,
0: yeah, I think that's like so important of the the compounding negative health effects of <laughs> racism and sexism, you know, and capitalism, mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. um, and what it does to folks, you know in these. Situations, And then, you know, I get kind of like, I feel frustrated and angry of, because um, there's other folks making these institutions this way. Like, yes, these are systems, but there's people running mm-hmm. these systems that are like causing black women to die early from working yeah. in these systems.
1: Or not paying black women and they have to get extra jobs or they have to do other things or, you know, it's just putting more stress on them as I mean are us them, you know, as we live and take care of our communities as well. because that's that's like another thing too, where it's like it's not just about us. Many of us don't come from multi generations of wealth. So it's always you know thinking about the people around us and how do we use uh, what we've learned and our wealth or our, you know our income to empower other people. That's important.
0: Yeah. hundred percent. You know, as we're wrapping up, I just want to thank you so much for your time. And I just want to, you know, give you, if there's anything else you want to put out there, you know, on this time we have together.
1: Um, let's see. Yeah. I mean, always follow me. And so hopefully you'll have all that information. Of course. Um, you know, um, that's really important at Dr. Monica Cox. But, you know, I think that I mean, I, I talked about courage. That is the thing that I want to leave with people where I say it is hard to do this work, but it is worth doing this work. And you have to push past the pain and, you know, you're, it's not going to happen in a day. But when you tired, when you're tired, what do you do? You rest and then you build you get back up again and you start it. And so that's just how this is done You know, that is how you, um, you know, continue to see beyond yourself. Like, this is not about one person. And if you have kids or whether you don't have kids, you know, I talked about legacy early on, you know, we only have one life to live and what we do in this life matters, whether we think so or not. And so that one time that we speak up or the one time that we do something that's brave, it's a seed that hopefully will grow. And- you know, I'll say um, it reminds me of my father. And so this is an example um, where my father has passed away, but my father bought some land in Alabama. And uh, before he passed, he took me out to that land and um he said, I'm giving this to you. He said, I won't see what you do with it, but this is my gift to you. And it is that, that I think about, we may not see the impact of this podcast. Somebody could listen to this a hundred years from now. You don't know how this is going to influence people, but every time you do this work, you do it hoping that, like I said, that one woman who said, I keep her moving, the words hit and you don't know how they hit. And you may never know. Someone may never tell you that they chose to keep moving because of something you did, but it happens. People need encouragement and to know that they're not alone. So that's what this is about. It's bigger than than we are. And always remember that.
0: I appreciate you so much. And (laughs) I'm so glad we got to connect like, finally like this. And again, I want to thank you for taking your time to come on here and talk with me. And also thank you for doing the
1: work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I have to. You know what? At some point, you just have to. It is my calling. It is what I'm meant to do. So it is my pleasure to do this. Thank you for asking.
0: Thank you for listening to Doing the Work, Frontline Stories of Social Change. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Please follow on Twitter and leave positive reviews on iTunes. If you're interested in being a guest or know someone who's doing great work, please get in touch. And thank you for doing real work to make this world a better place.